Okay, so we're introducing Rabbi Evan Hoffman at 7 o'clock sharp on a special, as a special guest speaker on Sunday night. Uh, but we'll be on the Parsha. I take it Parsha Truma. We're on, we're on Purim. We're actually, we're on Chodesh Adar. We're on Chodesh oh, Adar. Okay. Okay. It's a Chodesh, Adar, Purim, Chodesh Adar. Okay. Even better. Okay. Take it. And with, from the Friday school, I'll take it away with Hoffman. Okay. So the Mishnah tells us that when the month of Av enters, we reduce our joy. Mishinichnas Av, Mema'atin Besimcha. The Gemara adds, not the Mishnah, but the Gemara, that when Adar, uh, enters, we increase our joy. It's the song, everybody knows it, good. But um, the Gemara continues with a line from Rav Papa. Rav Papa posits that there are auspicious and inauspicious times, and that luck works against the Jew in Av, and luck works in favor of the Jew in Adar, and therefore, if a person has litigation against a non-Jewish counterpart, uh, they should run away from the courthouse in Av and race to the courthouse in Adar, because that'll produce a better outcome for themselves. They'll avoid losing in an inauspicious time, and they'll gain a great victory in the auspicious time. So my uh, my friend's daughter, who goes to Beis Yaakov, uh, she said to me, Rabbi Hoffman, Rabbi Hoffman, but isn't there a Pasuk in the Torah somewhere that says you're not allowed to believe that Days are lucky versus unlucky. So, okay. So the answer is basically yes. Uh, the Torah admonishes the Israelites not to imitate the objectionable practices of the Kenanim. You shall not eat blood, neither shall you practice divination nor soothsaying. Lo to onenu. So just a comment. Um I don't want to mention periods of Judaism or styles of Judaism. Some people don't like that. But you know what I'm referring to. So in this book, I would recommend to you from Tamar Gindin. It's Uh the Book of Esther Unmasked. I have it by by Mitchell first. Uh, Yes. Yeah, I have it. This is from Tamar Gindin. You you have the book? I don't have that book. No, no. It's Tamar Gindin. She's a linguist from uh, uh, either she's from Iran or she's of Persian ancestry. So she analyzes a lot of what Judaism has sort of taken on yeah. at our time in the East. Uh-huh, and yeah. auspicious times exactly match what people did in Persia. Okay, I'm not surprised. So the Torah has low tonate. The Torah reinforces this prohibition by ousting from society anyone who would engage in such, such pursuits. So, there shall not be found among you. Get them out of society. We don't want these people around who are going to do these sorts of things. Well, we're talking about divination, soothsaying, enchanting, or sorcery. The sages offered a few different theories about the precise meaning of me'onein. Rabbi Ishmael said it refers to those who ready themselves to perform sorcery by applying semen to their eyes. That's pretty gross. Uh, I don't know. I guess that was a thing back then. Others say it refers to illusionists who practice uh, sorcery by deceiving the eyes of their audience. So we're not talking about a guy who does it like at a circus, you know, with, 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 with takes a $20 bill and he ends up on the other side of the room and you're all clap. How did he do that? Okay, that's just for fun. But we're talking about people who do deceptive techniques 
for the purpose of impressing the people that they can predict the future. Now, others say, Rabbi Akiva says, that it refers to someone who claims that certain moments are more auspicious than others, that one should not calculate time and say, today is a good day to travel, tomorrow is not a good day to travel, today is a good day to reap the grain, tomorrow is not a good day to reap the grain. Uh, so this is Rabbi Akiva's shita, and it's very much against notions of auspicious and inauspicious. In primitive societies, it was commonplace for people to turn to professional prognosticators for guidance about when a particular undertaking was most likely to be successful. And the Gemara cites Rabbi Akiva's parish in Sanhedrin, although curiously, it, it omits one thing. It omits weather prognostication. That, that seems to be allowed. So in, you know, in Eastern Europe, when... Um, when uh, weather reports first became a thing, like in the late 19th, early 20th century, and when radio was a thing, uh, in Yiddish, how do you refer to a, a weatherman, a weather reporter, a meteorologist? He's a vetter Navi, but he was also a Navi Shekhar. So, as you know, they, they, they tried, but they didn't always get it right. Wouldn't you say that a weatherman is based on some type of more analytical or scientific perspective rather than... Understood. Well, so so, so si- science... Whatever is is knowable through real science is not going to be known in any in any in any way. It's only when you're relying upon, this, you know, pure rank speculation and things that are based in nothing rational that you're you're guilty. Okay, so the Rambam ruled it was forbidden to declare on the basis of astrological predictions that a given month, day, or year was a good time or a bad time to initiate a commercial venture. Moreover, in the Rambam's view, someone violates this Torah prohibition even by merely listening to someone else say it and then following their instructions. In other words, certainly you're guilty if you're the one who makes the calculations, but you're even guilty if somebody else does it and you listen to them and you, you follow through with it. I'm reminded in, in Queens, uh, in Kew Garden Hills, there's a, there's a pizza store, Naomi Levy's Pizza and Falafel Place. It's a good falafel. I don't like the pizza, though. And there's a lady there, it was like a tarot card reader. She's been there for years. She's a machashefa of the classic order. And yet she's been having customers in a religious neighborhood for, for as far as I can remember. Uh, she shouldn't be there. But yet she's there every day. Uh, now, the Rambam says that all forms of divination are utter nonsense. And he stresses that Jews of all people should be smart enough not to believe in this. Um, now it's, it's interesting. He has a little bit of a misogynistic uh, uh, line when he explains how Jews should be, should know better. He says, These are the foolish people, silly people. The women and children believe in this stuff. So he was, you know, in the 12th century, you know, he could get away with that line. If the 20th or 21st century uh, posig said that, they, 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 they give him the riot act. Aval bale chachmat mehadat Okay, so the Israelim, the Jews, should know better. Everyone else, you know, who doesn't have, who has chosei das, they could fall for it, but we shouldn't fall for it. Fine. Now, with that said, what, are, what is a Jew supposed to do? So the Rambam ends his halacha there, by quoting a pasuk, Tamim im What is Tamim im What is Tamim? 
Who wants to tell me? Pure. Pure. You should be wholehearted, complete, pure with God in the sense that you're not reliant upon other sources of information for your knowledge of the future. Rather, you either have no knowledge of it, you're just going to live life and whatever happens, happens. Or if, if God gives you a revelation, God gives you a revelation. But otherwise, you trust in God and don't need to look to other sources of information to know what's going to happen tomorrow or the day after. Okay. Now, the Rambam codified the obligation to minimize joy in Av in Hilchot Taniyot chapter 5. But he omitted uh, mention of avoiding litigation with Gentiles in Av. And he completely omitted anything of increasing joy in Adar or, of, or going to court in Adar. So of the four things, Av don't go to court, Adar do go to court. Of those four things, the only one the Rambam codified was the one that's actually in the Mishnah. Namely, reduce your joy in Av. That's it. So in the Rambam Shul, they weren't singing because he left it out completely. Okay. However, however, the Torah and the Shulchan Aruch both include in their halachic codes guidance for a Jew to avoid uh, litigation in Av with a non-Jew. However, both codes omit anything of increasing joy or scheduling court dates for Adar. So the Shulchan Aruch doesn't have Mishinich Adar. It has Mishinich Av and don't go to court in Av, but it doesn't have anything about Adar. However, nearly all of the major Ashkenazi Achronim do include in their halachic works notions of Mishinich Adar and go to court in Adar. Um, so it's, it's interesting how the codification of the halacha evolved over time from just the one line in the Mishnah, which is what the Rambam preserved, to the Shulchan Aruch taking a little bit more, to the Ashkenazic Afron taking the whole package. So the Mishnah being in, in Eretz Israel yeah. goes against the idea that auspicious times is of a foreign origin, unless you're saying that they, they brought it from the east. No, I'm going to tell you that the Mishnah, when it says Mishinichnas Av, has nothing to do with auspicious and inauspicious times. That's uh, Ralph Papa twisting it in a, in a pretzel. The plain meaning is just don't be so happy in Av. It's not a you know it, it's a time it's a time when a Jew should be redu- of reduced joy, having uh, nothing to do whether you're lucky or unlucky at this time. Just our behavior ought to be reduced to joy. Okay, so now Chassam Sofer took note of the Rambam's conspicuous uh, omission of Rav Papa's advice. And he theorized that the Rambam omitted any reference to auspicious and inauspicious months because the Rambam sides with the Amoraic view that the fate of Israel is not tied to astrological considerations. Ein mazal le Yisrael. You've heard that expression, ein mazal le Yisrael? The, 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 the Goyim, they have, you know, they have mazalot. They have... Their, their fate is tied to you know, the, the, what's going on in the skies. But we, the Jews, we have a direct relationship with the Rebona Shalom. The Mazalot have nothing to do with us. Okay? Even though we can have is, Mazalot on the floor of Beit Knesset here in Israel. Uh, uh, understood. So, so this this sta- statement in the Gemara by one Amor of Ein Mazal Yisrael clearly was an elitist rabbinic view that was not held by the Hamon Am who ran the shuls. Uh-huh. Okay, remember, remember, the rabbis don't control everything. So, the Gemara has an Amoraic dispute whether Mazal affects Israel. One Amora says yes, another Amora says no. Rabbi Chanina said yes, Rabbi Yochanan and Rav said no. Chsam Sofer suggested the Rambam omitted from his code the Gemara's expansion of the Mishnah's narrow ruling because the passage was stated from the perspective of those who believe there is a Mazal Israel. 
However, I think that the Chatam Sofer, the Mechilas Kevodo, was a little bit off base here. He's right that the Rambam holds Ein Mazali Yisrael. However, he's wrong in quoting that particular sugya as the reason for the Rambam's approach. Rambam believed Ein Mazal, period. Not Ein Mazal Yisrael. Ein Mazal, full stop. Goyim or Jews alike, and the whole thing is rubbish. Okay, so now that's that's a very rationalistic perspective, but not all the rabbis of of, of uh, Central Europe or Eastern Europe were willing to countenance in the Achronic period. But that that was what the Rambam held. So uh, we're correct in noting that he left it out, but for a more a broader reason, a macro reason, rather than the micro reason of Emazali Israel. Okay. Um, now some rabbinic writers tried to justify the popular Jewish notion that Adar is an auspicious month by citing the Gemara that issues a caveat to the ban on divination. That yes, you're not allowed to do divination, but there's a caveat to that rule. And what is that? Rabbi Shem ben Elazar says, this Gemara Chulun, that if someone is successful in his first business venture after building a new house, or after having a child, or after getting married, then even though he cannot use this as a means of divination to decide the future course of action, it's an auspicious sign that he will continue to be successful. I would, in, in the 20th century terms, say it means like you go on a hot streak. You know, you're, you're a baseball player, you can go for 12, or you can go 8 for 12, and your batting average goes up 30 points in a week. So you're on a hot streak. So Rav Yaakov Emden who cites Rashi, mentions that Purim and Pesach are examples of uh, liberation, salvation. And so, according to Yaakov Emden, when there's a pattern that has developed of multiple salvations in different eras and against different enemies, proving favorable for Israel the character of this particular season. That, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding. It's happened before, so therefore we'll treat this as an auspicious time. Similarly, Tosfis and Maharsha defend Rav Papa by noting that meritorious things are brought about on favorable days and uh, deleterious matters are brought about on unfavorable days. The Gemara says this, which, uh, if, if we go look at the Zakai, the, the good days, so in the month of Nisan, what historical events occurred, according to the tradition? Well, it was the Brit ben Abitarim, the covenant between the parts of Avraham, um, the angelic announcement that Avraham would have a child through Sarah, Parshas Vayera, okay, the birth of Yitzchak, and Yitzhak Mitzrayim, and maybe a whole host of other things that, are, that we can't prove from the text of the Torah on that day, but Chazal tell us happened on that day. So that's Yom Zakai. And the Galgun so we can uh, sort of roll together good things are going to happen that day again. What about Yom Chayav? Oh, well, so, so what, what, how would the Rambam deal with that? We're, we're now predicting based on that a future event. Um, so I, I would say that he would regard it not as necessarily an auspicious day, but a day when good things have happened. And if bad thing, if good things happen again, it's because the Rebonish Lulam decides to make it so. But not that we can uh, rely upon that 
in our in, in, in determining our conduct. We can hope for things and sort of give a smile when it happens, but not that we can be absolutely certain of anything. Okay, so when it comes to the Yom Chayav, so Tishabav, Shivasa Batamuz, the Mishnah says there were five things bad things happened this day, five bad things happened that day. So since there's multiple bad things that have happened, it becomes Yom Chayav, and therefore it shouldn't surprise us if there's another bad thing at some point down the road. Okay, so now I ask a very basic question, a theological question, but maybe it's not a theological question. And I just tipped you off as to what the answer is. What causes history to repeat itself, or at least to rhyme? Well, theologically, you'd have to say God. I mean, all right. So there are there are three answers. There are three answers for we the can't believer. Say the stars. We we don't want to say it's in the it, that it's in the stars. Uh, the constellation is set that when that rolls around again, you know, I don't think we can say that. I mean, no, okay, no, so, no, no one believes that, at least in our world. So the, the, there are three answers. The believer can see the hand of God. The skeptic can see happenstance or coincidence. But there's a third view, which is a middle ground view, which has nothing to do with theology. And that is that human beings are aware of the historical record. And they choose to act on specific dates. So, for example, the anti-Semite who's familiar with the Jewish calendar and knows about our mournful period of Av may choose to do a pogrom on, in the nine days or on Tisha B'Av, or to expel us from X or Y European country on Tisha B'Av. Not because they are totally oblivious to things and by a coincidence it worked out or by the hand of God it worked out that it's on the, on the same, ba- same day we've had bad things. No, they know about it and they choose to do it. Okay, it was no accident that Egypt and Syria invaded Israel on October 6, 1973. They did not know it was Yom Kippur. They knew it was Yom Kippur. They chose to act on a certain date. So similarly with with good things, we sometimes choose to make our celebrations on a day already suffused with happy memories. No, but I think they thought we're going to be um, having inability to mobilize. Right, right. So that's that's an example they chose because it would be militarily advantageous. Okay. So doesn't Haman pick a dar? Because that's the month that Moshe died in. Okay, there you go. So the Medrash tells us that that Haman looks at the Jewish calendar, sees that Adar is an inauspicious time because of Moshe's death, and he chooses to act on that month. That's an example of what I'm saying here. It's not that it's arbitrary. It's that our enemies are familiar with our own religious baggage. Okay, now I'll I'll quote from a Kabbalist. I rarely ever quote from a Kabbalist. Everyone knows I'm I'm a... I'm sorry, I have to disagree with you on the Yom Kippur War. Yom Kippur is not a bad thing. No, no, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's an example of the opponents know our calendar and choose to act accordingly. That's all I was trying to get across. Okay, okay. so I don't, I don't usually cause quote a Kabbalist, but I'll quote Rabbi Alfandari, who was the chief rabbi of Damascus in the 19th century. And he offers another defense of a belief in the auspiciousness of Adar and the inauspiciousness of Av. He says the following, the Torah banned divination and soothsaying only so that people will not come to believe that the clock or the calendar itself influences man's destiny. Rather, people are duty bound religiously to cultivate a belief that it is God himself who controls man's destiny. Okay, fine. So 
once the joy of Adar and the sadness of Av take on a specifically Judaic character in which the hand of God is identified with past salvations and past tragedies, then it's no longer pedagogically problematic or theologically objectionable to regard those months as auspicious or inauspicious. In other words, if, if we didn't think of Purim and Tishabav as events that occurred because of the hand of God, rather just, you know, events of the past, God's not involved, bad, good, whatever it is, and then we said, oh, well, those days are auspicious or inauspicious, then all of a sudden the clock becomes God. However, once we see the hand of Rebona Shalom in the events of the past, and they happen to have occurred on this or that date, it's not as problematic or maybe totally acceptable to say, yeah, auspicious or inauspicious day, because the Jew, the contemporary Jew, now is regarding the Rebona Shalom as an, as an active force in what's making those days good or bad days. So I like this answer. Why? Because the temptation to believe in lucky and unlucky days is something that's never going to be to- totally removed from the body politic of Israel. We're always going to have our mystical types who border on paganism and these sorts of beliefs. And we have to reel them in. Even though we can't make everybody a, a-, a maskil or a misnagid, all right, you have to reel them in. And for a Kabbalist of, of, of the 19th century, a Sephardic Kabbalist, to say it's okay so long as you realize the following, that it's God and not the clock, that's going to be something that's that will appeal to the mystical types among us. So it's a, it's not my answer, but it's an answer that I'm glad somebody gave to reel in those who are on the precipice. We've even tried to roll in bad events on Shvas, Tammuz, and Tishabav yeah. when, when those events didn't even really occur in those days. You're right. You're right. That's a common phenomenon we would do. Yeah? yeah. Okay. Now I think, then we get to Hoffman's answer. So I think that Rav Papa's guidance regarding the individual Jews' litigation schedule actually detracted readers from the Mishnah and Gemara's original intent. I think we got sidetracked, maybe. The Mishnah's instruction to diminish one's joy upon the onset of Av is the final line of a long, long paragraph listing the five tragedies undergirding the 17th of Tammuz and the 9th of Av. So, what the Mishnah really meant was that a loyal patriotic Jew will instinctively be less jubilant on the anniversary of our people's worst defeats, and a good patriotic Jew will instinctively be more cheerful on the anniversary of our people's escape from mortal danger. Planning one's uh, activities on the basis of luck or unluck ascribed to those days constitutes prohibited soothsaying, at worst or is irrelevant at best. What matters is the sentiment in the heart of the Jew as determined by their appreciation of our national past. So now I'll compare it to in the 21st century. Most of you guys are on Facebook, okay, Facebook. So what happens when you open up Facebook for the first time in a day? You'll see that nine years ago you went to some some park with your kids or your grandkids. And 13 years ago you made some silly post about whatever. And 12 years ago, uh, you know, the Mets uh, lost a game and you were upset, whatever it is. So... They tell you the highlights of this day X number of years ago. But that's about you personally. What the goal of the Mishnah had been was that you, the individual Jew, should feel the events of the past and recognize that you ought to be less happy when you're scrolling through your feed and you see the destruction of the temple on this day 2,000 years ago. Or 
you, there's a smile on your face because on this date, 2,500 years ago, there was escape from the, from the clutches of Haman. If you're a good Jew, that's what's going to happen. Mishenichnas av mematin besimcha is the logical outcome of the for behavior of a Jew who's doing the right thing and thinking the right thoughts, not auspicious and auspicious baloney. And the same thing with Adar. You're going to be happier because good things happen on that day, and you recall it. Okay. So the uh, one of the great motivational speakers uh, of the past generation was Avraham Infeld. Anybody know him personally? Avraham Infeld, the South African guy, lives in Israel. Okay. So Avraham Infeld was an outreach guy for years. He developed the five-legged table metaphor for Jewish identity. Bruce, after we're done, I'm going to send you the link for a YouTube video. It's hysterical, but it's actually very meaningful. And I want you to watch it. It's about a 15-minute video. And he has the five-legged table theory of Jewish identity. A table with five legs will stand. A table with four legs will stand. A table with three legs, well, probably could also stand if you don't tip it over. Two, it'll knock over. One, you're not even standing. So he offers five different components in terms of religious ritual, family, da, da, da. Now, the first component, however, is Jewish memory, Jewish memory. And Infeld asserts that the primary purpose of Jewish education is to open up the mind of the individual Jew to help him link his personal memory with the collective memory of Am Yisrael. When do we do this? When during the year do we do this? Well, I can think of two specific ones. One is next Shabbos, Parashat Zachor, where I'm reading now and making a big production with all the women and children coming in with a minion of the Sefer Torah, Parashat Zachor, you can't miss it, to hear what happened to my people uh, long ago. But also at the Seder we do this, in the paragraph of Bechol Dor Vador. In every generation, a person must be regarded as that they personally left Egypt. I place myself in the story so I feel the feelings of my people. Um, it's, it's not a guarantee that a person will feel that way. If you don't have the education, then what are you going to feel? Only what you personally experience. What's now or what has been in my lifetime of 41 years. Uh, but not what happened in my parents' lifetimes or their grand- grandparents or much earlier. Only if I have been instructed to care about what happened before will I do so. But once I have that instruction, maybe I really will. It will really matter to me. And in Av, I'll be down, you know, downtrodden, and I'll be, I'll be jubilant. Okay. So Jews, like all other peoples, are tempted to believe in astrology, in auspicious times, in other irrational notions. Despite the Bible's best warnings and the Rambam's assertion that only the women and children believe such silliness, aspects of soothsaying remain, or have entered the rabbinic mainstream, the halacha codes, and popular practice. So when I wrote an essay on this topic, I cited as a footnote, Shulchan Aruch Yeredeya 179.2, Evan Ezra 64.3, and a few other examples, where in the Shulchan Aruch itself, you find uh, minhagim, or I wouldn't even call them minhagim, but rather uh, practices that some Jews developed that re- achieved rabbinic sanction, where there's purely irrational basis for it, and it's not a Judaic tradition. It becomes Jewish, despite not being Judaic. With example, could an example that be giving a baby that died before the eighth day sort of a brit at the graveside, thinking it's going to say it again? A baby who dies prematurely, yeah, yeah, giving a bris yeah, before, before the eighth day, and yet I understand there's a custom to give a bris to the, to the corpse, yeah, yeah, based on 
some type of mystical understanding that'll help it either survive through Gehenna or, or Chidamatim, something. Not so quite I, I, w- I would not actually include that in this, sub- th- this subject because that's actually a, a ritual act that in, an, in the ordinary course is not only encouraged, but is the chief ritual of Judaism, the bris. The fact that the baby died and now we're giving it to a, a, a corpse, it's a curiosity. It probably is motivated by desires, you know, for not having the, 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 the soul go to purgatory or whatever it is. That there are elements of mysticism there, but at least the act itself was a mitzvah act, as opposed to other things which are totally removed from any uh, official re- religious ritual. So well, what anyway, about the Gemara with the first of pairs? I right, think. so that's an example of zugot, of, of, of shteikosos. You're not supposed to have two cups, four cups, six cups, eight cups. It's very foreign to, to traditional Jewish belief, but at some point along the way, Jews took it very seriously, except those who didn't. The Gemara is very clear. If you don't take it seriously, it doesn't matter. If you take it seriously, <laughs> it matters. If you don't take it seriously, it doesn't matter. Okay. Now, my last point is that this Adar, we should focus away from notions of luck and unluck, and instead foster feelings that are consistent with an awareness that we're part of a broader scope of, of the history of our people. That we shouldn't think that we are an island unto ourselves, but rather we're one link in a chain, a long chain, which a lot came before us, but a lot will come after us, and that what has come before us should influence our mood at various times but not tell us that we're going to have uh, success or, or failure tomorrow or the day after. Okay, questions? Yeah, okay, question. Yeah. What do we do with uh, Bilam? At least as I understood that Bilam was able to tell the times and therefore he was able to prophesy or to give a bracha or a klala that seemed to work because he understood the times. Is that correct? Is that, isn't that a way of learning Bilam? So, so B- B- Bilam is said to have known the rega, the instant, when the Ribono Shalom, the Charon Af, the Ribono Shalom. Right. Uh, the idea that there's a, a moment of Charon Af of the Ribono Shalom um, is not really all that justified in the Torah. There's a stray line here or there that could allude to God's wrath, and God's wrath lasting very brief moment. But n- that was to, the, the real point of the Pasuk, is just that God is generally speaking a, mal, a, a benevolent deity, not a malevolent deity, and is usually kindly disposed towards us and only very infrequently uh, wrathful and, and vengeful against us. In the story of, of Bilam, somehow Chazal were able to turn that into a situation of every day there's a moment of Haron Av, even though it oh, never says that in the Bible. That. Huh? To, to, to answer Avi, can't you say that people believed it? That doesn't mean it was so. No, I'm exactly. not. I'm not even sure people really believed it. I I, I think that th- this was uh, um, an embellishment of Chazal specific to the story of Bilam that had no uh, um, role to play in the lives of Jews at any other, in any real moment. In other words. And this is purely exegetical, homiletical to explain a, a story in, the, in Sefer by Midbar. But not that Jews actually thought this was was true and lived lot, their lives according to it later on. Where do we where do we ever find that? Uh, right, there's a sugya in the Gemara about certain Tanoim who tried to with the, with, with, the, with the rooster when when the, when the, when the when the shadow of the rooster and this and that, and it always failed. And, and what's the point of those stories? That we shouldn't be involved in this stuff. 
And then even if you want to introduce it into the lives of people, don't. This is this is this is not not to be done. Okay. All right. Second, uh, this, what about the idea of cyclical time? Uh, people explain time in Judaism as being cyclical, uh, a whirlwind, sort of a turning around, uh, and the same time period or the same exact time comes in the time that was above it. You know, they they would explain it in oh, that Passover, the time of our our freedom, right? It, 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 but it's cyclical, right? And it goes around every. Time period, whatever. More a spiral. Spiral. So, I, I, I think the, the, uh, the point of, of, of that idea is to bring us to appreciate the events of the past and to try to reinforce them in our own lives. So in other words, the Zman Cherutenu happened at a certain point in time. Is it that there'll be Cherut again at that time? Not necessarily, but we should be appreciative of the fact that there is cherut, or zman matan teravatenu, which is a very late phraseology. It's not even in the Gemara. Um, it's not that the Torah is going to be given again. It's that we should, on an annual basis, remind ourselves to be very receptive to Torah, which we do on Shavuos. So it's 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 pedagogical, and hopefully we we learn the lesson. Zman, the one the one exception I would say is man simchatenu for Sukkot. That, it's a Pasuk in the Torah. You have an obligation to be Ach Sameach. So Zman Simchatenu there is about not a past event, but about religious religious law, uh, obligations. Well, to be explained that this is the actual time when there is Simcha and you attach yourself to that Simcha. Not arguing, just saying that would be an explanation of okay. that, that there is an idea that there is this cyclical idea of time spiral idea that this is the time then and we are living in that same time it draws a straight line down from the tops of, of the, of the uh, spiral to our time this is the same time in terms of the essence of the time which could be Simca in this case I'll take your word for it I, I, I've not, I've not, I don't have much to add <laughs> no, I think the people have explained it that way but you're not uh, you, you, explain the, you explain the Rambam's position, but what about the Ramban who yeah. seems to um, he says, I think that he's seen magic and fortune telling and, and that's why we should stay with not because it's nonsense, because it actually okay, works. So there's a there's a classic Machlokas we've shown him about about the, the efficacy of uh, of uh, sorcery and soothsaying and all that stuff. This whole broad package. The rationalists will say it's forbidden and it's dumb and uh, it doesn't work. And the irrationalists will say it's forbidden because it's bad, but it works. It's efficacious. It's just you have an obligation to stay away from it. No, but he said he's seen it. He's actually uh, said understood. He's okay, it. so I, I don't doubt that he, that he, that he, that he saw it. Um, uh, which, which of these two views uh, brings me more, more, uh, more joy as a student of Torah? The truth of the matter is, I like both positions. You know why? Because the the masculine me is instinctively a Maimonidian. However, however, if there was only the Maimonidian approach and the Ramban's view did not find expression in the words of of, of the Gedolim and of the Rishonim, then the Hamonam, who are inclined to believe these sorts of things, 
would have a hostile attitude towards the rabbis and then just be uh, in, in gross violation of the rules. It's the existence of the Nachmanidian approach that says, I'm with you people. I believe just like you do, but bear in mind the Torah says this is forbidden, so we got to stay away. Mm-hmm. And the, the modern day equivalent would be if you if if I were to go into a room full of uh, go to go to a shul in, in Forest Hills or Rigo Park in Queens and speak to a room full of young Bukharian Jews who were made ballet tshuva by one of these ballet tshuva gurus and I'd give a shear which was more in the vein of the Wissenschaft des Judentums an academic type shear and be dismissive of of all the beliefs that the Rambam says are nonsense, they'd stone me. And they'd say, oh, the rabbis are wrong. I, I need the irrational rabbis as a bulwark against uh, the Hamonam developing hostility to religion. It's true. There's no doubt about it. I used to live on 99th Street and 63rd Drive. <laughs> Far from Alexander's. All right, gentlemen, I got to be running. But okay. uh, a good a good, a good uh, week to you, Shavuot Tov. And uh, I wish... have a, a very joyous uh, Purim. I, I I want to wish you luck. So we'll see you next time, but I'll skip the luck part. Just we'll look forward to seeing it. you next time. We got a deal. Take care, guys. <laughs> and you wanted, to, uh, he, he, he wanted to send me something.